Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and the smell of fresh manna. Today you will be listening to Garrett Morgan, pastor of Big Rapids, Bristol, and Reed City Seventh-day Adventist churches. And now, here's Pastor Garrett. Happy Sabbath, everyone. Amen. It is good to be in God's house. It's good to be home. I'll tell you that much. It's been a whirlwind the past few months. We had camp meeting, and then I was away for about 10 days, and then I was camp pastor at Asable. And this week I have ministerial meetings until Wednesday. But after that, Everything will be back to normal, at least for us. So, But I'd like to start out, before we have a word of prayer this morning, just with a little bit of a precursor. You know, there's times in the ministry of Jesus where you wonder what he was thinking. And I'll explain that. Jesus always knew what he was doing. But there's times in Christ's ministry where he comes across rather harsh. Yeah? Like when he cursed a fig tree and it just died? When he turned tables over in the sanctuary, of course, or the temple? That's the classic. He called the religious leaders whitewashed tombs, right? There's times in Christ's ministry where he came across and it was rather pointed. Now there's one thing, at least as a pastor, that I believe the pulpit is not for. Whether you're preaching, whether you're reading the scripture, whether you're doing special music. I believe the pulpit is not a place where anger should be. Amen? I believe the pulpit is not a place where irritation should be either. And in today's message, I guess I risk coming across as maybe angry or irritated. And I just want to assure you that before I begin, I'm not irritated or upset at anyone. But this message I want to present today is not towards anyone individually, I'm preaching to myself here as well, but it's fairly pointed. It's a pretty pointed message, and I don't want to come across like I'm trying to come down on anybody, but I believe it's what the Lord wants to be said. So I know that the Holy Spirit will be here, and I hope it's a blessing for you. But like Jesus' ministry, sometimes he was rather harsh, but he always ended with a message of hope right? That's how Jesus worked. And so today, that's going to be my attempt as well. It may seem rather abrupt at the beginning. I hope towards the end that we finish with a message of hope, because that's how God always ends things. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started with today's message. Father, Lord, we thank you for your Sabbath. We thank you that we can come and worship together in this place. I know that we all have worries, we all have stresses in our lives, but Lord, may we leave those things at the door. May we come in this place to focus on the one thing that matters, and that's our relationship with you. We thank you, and and we praise you for this. Father, speak today as only you can and not myself. We pray in your name. Amen. 
I'd like to start today by building off something I said a few weeks ago. And I made this comment a couple Sabbaths ago that I believe that one of the greatest tragedies in the Christian church is that we treat the devil more of an estranged friend and not an enemy. We often keep the devil at not arm's length, but we keep him just close enough to where we can pull him back in when we want to deal with him. And I think often we cheapen the power that he has. And at risk of giving him credit today, I'd like to go over the track record of our enemy. Because it's serious. We'll begin by saying that the devil caused a third of the heavenly beings to fall. I mean, in Revelation, we find that the dragon drew a third of the stars of heaven down from heaven. The dragon was able to deceive a third of the heavenly beings. Think about that for just a moment. Not only was he able to do that, but he caused Earth's first couple, living in a perfect world and in communion with God, he caused them to not only sin, but to hide from their creator. Not only did the devil do that, but he attempted, he failed, but he attempted to deceive the Son of God, Jesus himself. He still attempted, but praise God, he failed. The devil caused all 12 disciples on that day that Jesus was betrayed to not stick by his side, but run away and flee and be fearful. Now I know, and, and we praise God for this, and we say this often, but when Jesus died on Calvary, he won the war. Amen? Praise God for that. Jesus won the war on Calvary when he was resurrected again. We praise God for that. The war has been won, but let me make sure that this is clear. The war's not over. The war has been won, but the war is not over. It's not completed. And I believe that you know that because you're alive in this world today. We know that Jesus has won, but the war has not been finished. And I believe that the war being won, praise God for that, is a beautiful thing. But the battle that continues today isn't the battle for heavenly dominance, but it's the battle for us. It's the battle for our individual souls. That's what's being fought over right now. Eternity has already been decided. But now the battle is for God's creation. That's a sobering thought. I'd like to take you to a verse here in the book of Matthew. We have a few passages today. Matthew chapter 24. Of course, we know this chapter is the signs of the times, and, but there's a spot here that I want us to look at today. Matthew chapter 24, and we'll start here in verse 23. Matthew 24, verse 23. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there will arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, which it is, 
they will deceive the very what? We look at that, and I don't know, and this is, I don't know how your thinking process goes. I don't know if you consider yourself a part of the elect or not. But nonetheless, and it's sad to say this, but deceiving the elect is no problem for Satan. He's done it before. (laughs) He not only deceived the 12 disciples, but he deceived the angels in heaven. Just because you may consider yourself to be a part of the elect, and maybe you don't, either way, it is no problem for Lucifer to deceive you. If you're standing on your own. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Deceiving the elect is no problem for Satan. He's done it time and again. It doesn't matter your religious teaching. It doesn't matter where you came from. He is able to deceive you no matter what you know, especially when you're not walking with Jesus. And because of this battle that's going on for us individually, the Bible labels God, and there's lots of different names for God in the Bible, but the Bible labels God as being a man of war. I'd like to take you another verse here. Go to Exodus, if you would. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, by the way, is where the children of Israel has just escaped from the Egyptian army. They had just crossed the Red Sea. And Exodus chapter 15 is the song that they sing as they get to the other side of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army has been destroyed. By the way, in the New Testament, Paul tells us that this is the first example of baptism that we find in the Bible. When the children of Israel walked through the Red Sea with the water on both sides, that was a symbolic baptism for the children of Israel, which I find is kind of cool. But anyway, Exodus chapter 15, this is how they sing about God here after he has wrought this victory. It says, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength, amen, and my song. He is my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him a habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Now, this is the verse. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. God is not a man of war because he enjoys the war. In fact, he would much rather be a man of peace, and I believe that God is a man of peace. But God is obsessed with this war because he is obsessed with you. Did you hear that? God is obsessed with this war that's going on right now because he is obsessed with you. And God understands that your eternal existence is on the line. God understands that the decisions that are being made today have eternal impact. And although he has won the war, God is not done fighting for you. God's work did not end at Calvary. In fact, it continued and I would say even began. God continues to fight for us today. And I'd like to just ask you, you don't have to answer, but you ever felt this battle before? By that, I mean, 
Have you ever felt pulled in one direction, right? And then you felt pulled towards the completely opposite direction? Maybe you feel God pulling you here, and then you feel your old sin, that old sinful man pulling you the other direction. And sometimes it happens at the same time, and it's like you're going to explode, right? This battle is being fought right here and right here around each of us every single day. I know that you felt it before because I know that I have. The battle for our soul is happening right now at this very moment. And God is not going to let you go without a fight. And on the other hand, the devil isn't going to give up easily either. The battle for your soul is happening. So what do we do about it? I'd like to take you to our main story today in 1 Samuel, if you'd go there with me. This is where we're going to spend the remainder of our time, what little we have left. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul is reigning over Israel. And the children of Israel are, find themselves constantly at war with the Philistines, on again and off again. Except this story, we find something different. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 19, we find the children of Israel know that they're going to be battling the Philistines yet again. Saul has begun to do that in the previous verses, but it's going to happen more and more. And so he begins to raise an army, and look what happens here in 1 Samuel 13, 19. It says, Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share, and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. I want to pause there for just a moment. There's an issue in this story. A big issue. The children of Israel have themselves the tools that they need for agriculture and for building homes and all of those things that they need, but they don't have any weapons of war. They don't have anything to defend themselves, not only from their enemies, but the enemies of God. And it's not because the Philistines came in and grabbed all of those weapons of war. It's not because there was an infringement on their, I'm I'm going to be careful here, There wasn't an infringement on their Second Amendment, so to speak. But in fact, something else happened. And it didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of time. Patriarchs and Prophets puts it this way. This is why they didn't have any swords. Controlled by love of ease and the abject spirit induced by long oppression the men of Israel had to great extent neglected to provide themselves with weapons of war. Bows and slings were used in warfare, and these the Israelites could obtain, but there were none among them except Saul and his son Jonathan who possessed a spear or sword. In other words, the children of Israel decided that putting up with the peaceful oppression that they had was okay. They neglected to make for themselves these weapons that they would need to become the nation that God wanted them to become. But they were happy living in bondage. And not only that, but but can you imagine, I mean, if you're a builder, 
if you're working with wood, like some of you do, whatever it may be, can you imagine having to go to your enemy every few months or every few weeks to sharpen your tools? Not even being able to do it yourself. So in other words, the Philistine not only controlled the Israelites and their warfare, but they also controlled their crops, controlled when they could build homes. The Israelites had to go to the Philistines for everything. This is a problem. And finally, when Israel's about ready to rise up, they look at each other and say, how are we going to do this? We have no tools to fight with. This is a problem. The story continues. Verse 22, so it came to pass in the day of the battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and with Jonathan, his son was there found. So two swords and two men have them. By the way, in 1 Samuel chapter 13 is the first time that we find Jonathan mentioned in Scripture. The story of Jonathan is one that is heartbreaking to me. Because Jonathan, and you'll find this here in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, he's immediately described as a man of courage and one that is faithful to God. And as Jonathan's life continues, you notice that he is faithful to David because he knows that David is the next king. And Jonathan has no jealousy, none of it. He's like, David, this is the guy. Praise the Lord that you're it. But at the same time, he's faithful to his father. And at the end of the day, he dies next to his father. It's a tragic story. And I believe that we'll see Jonathan in heaven. Amen. I can't wait to talk to that guy because his heart just seems so pure, doesn't it? I mean, it's hard not to love the guy. And you find this story here of the difference between him and Saul in 1 Samuel 14. Two swords in the entire nation, but they're used differently. 1 Samuel 14, 1. Now it came to pass upon that day that Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man that bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. And we'll stop there. So there's two men that have two swords. Jonathan says, let's do something. And Saul says, let's kick back under a tree and wait around. Well, as this happens, notice what happens here in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. And Jonathan said to the young man that bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, which is an insult, by the way. It may be that the Lord will work for us, and there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Turn, behold, I am with you. And if you continue reading this story, Jonathan went forward, just him and his armor bearer, and they won a great victory for the Lord that day. Powerful story. But let's bring it to home. Are there any swords in our church today? Man, I hope there is. But let's continue with that. There are three types of people in this story. I guess there's four, but three major ones. Those that don't have swords at all. Those that have a sword, but don't do anything about it, because you have Saul, right? He has a sword, he has the tool, but he kicks back. You've got Jonathan who has a sword and has faith in God and steps forward and does something about it. 
And I guess the fourth one that I hadn't really thought about before is you have his armor bearer who doesn't have a sword either, but he's like, sure, I'll follow you, right? I love that. You have those different groups. Now, which group are you in? Man, I pray we're in Jonathan's group. Man, I pray we're in Jonathan's group. You know, a sword in the Bible, we've talked about this before, but I don't have to take you to Ephesians chapter 6 because it says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, right? It's the Holy Spirit teaching you through the Word of God. That's your sword. And I love this because when Paul is talking about a soldier there in Ephesians chapter 6, he's describing like a Roman legionary. And the reason that we know that is because he describes the Roman legionary and everything that the Roman soldier would have had. And there's one thing that's missing. Well, actually two things that's missing from this man. We know it's a Roman legionary in Ephesians chapter 6 because it talks about all the armor that's on. But the Romans were different. In Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about this too. You have a breastplate, you have a shield, you have all these things. But there's no shield for the back. Roman soldiers were known for not having shields for their back because their officers didn't want them to turn and retreat. So they were better off fighting forward because they were covered and they had armor, and the moment they turn around, they were done. The Christian does not have any armor on his back because God wants him to fight forward. Secondly, something that's missing from Ephesians 6, which I think is great, is usually when you go into battle back in those days, you had your sword, but you usually carried a spear as well, right? And that was your first method of attack. But Ephesians chapter 6 doesn't mention a spear. It only mentions a sword. And I believe the reason for that is we have one method of defense, and it's the Word of God. That is it. If you bring something else to the table, if you bring another method of fighting the devil that's not the word of God with you, it's over. You have what God has given you and nothing else, amen? Because that is enough. Amazing things to be found in Ephesians chapter six. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. But here's another question for you. And this one's harsh. Who's sharpening your sword? Maybe you have a sword, praise God. But who are you going to to sharpen it up? Because I'll tell you this, the devil would love to sharpen your sword. He would love it. Because when the devil sharpens your sword, he makes sure that your blade is thrashed. He makes sure that your blade isn't going to hold up to his own temptations. And I'll tell you today, there are many places that you can go to sharpen your sword that is going to ruin your blade. And I'll tell you a place that many people go to sharpen their sword. And it's Google. If you're studying your Bible through Google and not the spirit of prophecy, then you're ruining your blade. And don't get me wrong, there's some great stuff out there, all right? I mean, we have our preachers on Google and YouTube and all that stuff. That's great. But there are so many false prophets that are out there. They are alive and they are well. And if you are going to sharpen your sword based off some Joe Blow on YouTube, you may be doling it and not sharpening it. If you want to know that your sword is being sharpened, 
go to God. Amen? Let iron sharpen iron. Let God sharpen your sword through the Holy Spirit, but make sure that a Philistine is not sharpening your sword. Make sure that you guard your sword and maintenance. Guard your sword with your life. Which of the group are we? Mercy, I hope that we have swords amongst us. I hope that we're doing something with our swords. I hope that we're allowing them to be sharpened by God himself. But I want to finish by closing with what Jonathan said. I'm sure that you caught it. In 1 Samuel 14, 6, I love what he says to his young armor bearer. Jonathan said to the young man that bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. This is the part I want us to notice. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by a few. God is going to win this battle. He's already won this battle, but God is going to win this battle, whether there's a few of us or all of us. And when Jonathan said that, he's actually quoting what Gideon said back in Judges. God is going to do his work, whether with a few of us or with many of us, and he wants all of us. But the rubber meets the road when we understand that Jesus is going to come to save us, whether there are a few of us ready or many of us ready. The Bible's very clear that the way to heaven is a narrow road because few there are that actually walk on it. The 144,000 in the book of Revelation I'm not saying it's a literal or symbolic number or anything like that, but no matter what you believe about that number, it's a small one. In other words, friends, Jesus would much rather have you on his side. But he's going to come whether you're on it or not on it. I'm sorry to say, but the world doesn't revolve just around you or me. God is going to continue with his plan whether you've chosen to be on his side or not. So like Joshua said, it's about time that we pick which side that we're truly on. Which side are we on? And once you've chosen the side that you're on, pick up a weapon and start fighting. Because I'm tired of just sitting under a tree. I'm tired of waiting for the battle to come to me because the battle's already here. Saul was ignoring the fact that there was a battle raging right around him. He was just sitting there waiting for it to come to him and was losing. Jonathan realized the battle was coming and he went and met it, not in his power, but the power of God. Friends, the devil is no easy task to overcome. He will win time and time again when you stand toe-to-toe with him. 
but we have Jesus. Amen. We have the power of God on our side. And if you stand and go with God, you will never lose. You will never have to turn around and let your bare backside show because God will lead us forward every step of the way. Sharpen your swords, pick them up, and use them because Jesus is coming. Don't be caught without one because eternity is going to be eternal or eternal death. And that's the battle that's being fought today. Father, Lord, we want to be victorious. Lord, we want to defeat that old serpent, the devil. Lord, we know that you've already defeated him, but Lord, we want to kick him out of our lives. Lord, we cannot wait for that day to come when we can turn our weapons of war into weapons of peace. But Lord, that time's not here. May we not only choose this day whom we will serve, but Father, may we get up and start working and following in the direction that you lead us. We pray in your name. Amen. You have been listening to Garrett Morgan, pastor of Big Rapids, Bristol, and Reed City Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed this sermon, why not visit one of his churches this coming Sabbath or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. You will find the Big Rapids Seventh-day Adventist Church at 1031 Rose Avenue in Big Rapids, and their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. Or visit the Bristol Seventh-day Adventist Church located at 11225 East 8 Mile Road in Tustin, and their church service begins at 11.30 a.m. Or visit the Reed City Seventh-day Adventist Church located at 17290 U.S. Highway 10 in Hersey, and their church service begins at 3 p.m. This program has been a Strong Tower Radio production.